Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Neo Shabin. This audio series is true crime horror stories that happen to real people. Things that we just can't explain. I always say the creepiest crimes happen in small towns. Maybe it's because it's so many hidden secrets. Who knows? Before we start, we just want to give a very big shout out to our sponsors, Gore Culture, your first stop for all horror-related content, preferred source for latest thrillers, sci-fi, horror films, news, and more. And also, big shout out to MBB Films Productions for giving us a platform. It's evil. Real Alabama cases. Andrew Lackey, The Halloween Killer. On Halloween night, 2005, in Athens, the home of 80-year-old veteran Charles Newman was broken into by 22-year-old Andrew Lackey. Newman's grandson had told Lackey his grandfather had a vault inside his home that held a lot of cash. Lackey confronted Newman, and as Newman called 911, Lackey began firing shots. Newman then grabbed his own gun and shot Lackey. Lackey then stabbed Newman more than 70 times. As Lackey tried driving himself to the hospital, he had to make a stop. He was eventually arrested and received treatment for his wounds. When asked how was he shot, he refused to answer. As authorities searched his car, they found his 38 caliber handgun. As he searched Newman's house, they came across blood that matched Lackey's DNA. Lackey was sentenced to death on April 3rd, 2008, and was later executed in Alabama by lethal injection on July 25th, 2013. And this is not even the creepiest part. On a 911 call recording from Newman's home, the veteran's last words were, come, sit down and let me pray for you. He was trying to calm Lackey, who was a close friend of his grandson, according to court records. On the recording, Lackey could be heard asking for the location of the vault. Story number two, Audrey Marie Healy. Marie was an American murderer who was found guilty for poisoning her husband, Frank Healy, with arsenic. She had also been poisoning her daughter, Carol, with large doses of arsenic after taking out a life insurance policy on her. Healy was arrested on October 9th, 1979 for the attempted murder of her daughter. And on November 9, 1979, she was released on bail and registered at a hotel under the name Emily Stevens. She then escaped, was listed as a fugitive. Marie was eventually caught, brought back to Alabama to face trial for her husband's murder and the attempted murder of her daughter. She received life in prison for murdering her husband and 20 years for attempting to murder her daughter in 1983 and 1987. Marie escaped from the prison after being given three-day pass to visit her new husband. She vanished for four days and was found crawling in the woods, soaked from the rain. The temperatures had been in the low 30s after being taken to the hospital to be treated for hypothermia. Marie suffered from a heart attack and died. Sue Kraft was driving through an icy drizzle to her home in Anniston, Alabama. In February 1987, when she spotted a stranger on the back porch of her neighbor's house. It was a woman on her knees who seemed to be trying to break in. Kraft drove to another neighbor and called the police. Then the two women went back to the house where they found the woman sprawled out on the porch, unable to move. I really didn't like looking at her. She was scary, Kraft later said. There were two spots of mud on her face. Her bangs were stuck to her forehead. 
She had long fingernails like she had never wronged out a mop. She was so dirty. The stranger died later in the hospital. Some might say it was a fitting in for a woman who must have had ice water in her veins. She was Alabama's Black Widow, Audrey Marie Healy. And the craziest part of the entire story of this case is she's changed her identity a few times. Marie faked her death, wrote her own obituary, and somehow convinced her second husband that she was her twin sister. She got away with it until the clueless husband's friend started asking questions. Story number three, Amy Bishop, the crazy professor. Amy Bishop was a biology professor at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Shot and killed three faculty members, wounded three others on February 12, 2010. In March of 2009, Bishop was denied tenure, which meant spring 2010 would be her last semester to be employed by the university. During a faculty meeting, Bishop stood up and began shooting those closest to her with a 9mm handgun, execution style. Bishop didn't have a permit to carry a concealed weapon, and she was in total denial after the event. She didn't believe her colleagues were really dead. The day of the shooting, students claimed she seemed perfectly normal. On September 11, 2012, Bishop pleaded guilty to one count of capital murder and three counts of attempted murder in order to avoid the death penalty. On September 24, 2012, Bishop was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And that's not the strangest part of the case. Get this, over the years, Dr. Bishop had shown evidence that the smallest of the slightest could set her off. A disproportionate and occasionally violent reaction, according to numerous interviews with colleagues and others who knew her. Her life seemed to veer wildly between moments of cold fury and scientific brilliance, between rage and perceived slights and empathy for her students. Her academic career slammed to a halt with the shooting rampage. Nine days ago against her colleagues, Dr. Bishop, 45, is accused of killing three fellow biology professors, including the department chairman, at a faculty meeting. Three others were wounded. Her lawyer says she remembered nothing of the shooting and that he plans to have her evaluated by psychiatrics. In 2002, she was charged with assault with punching a woman in the head at an international house of pancakes and Peabody. The woman had taken the last booster seat and according to the police reports, Dr. Bishop demanded it for one of her children, shouting, I am Dr. Amy Bishop. In 1986, not long after, a family argument, Amy Bishop shot and killed her brother, Seth, 18, with her father's 12-gauge shotgun, putting a gaping hole in his left chest and tearing open his aorta, according to police reports. She was 21 years old, like her brother, a student at Northeastern University. But Amy Bishop was not charged with a crime, and the shooting was never fully investigated by the police. She and her family said it was an accident, and the authorities accepted their version. And in 1994, she and her husband were questioned in a mail bomb plot against a doctor at Harvard, where she obtained her PhD and remained on and off for nearly a decade to conduct postdoctoral research. You be the judge. Do you think that Amy Bishop was a innocent and misunderstood woman or a cold calculated killer? Case number four, 
In May of 1992, Betty Wilson and her twin sister Peggy Lowe were arrested and tried for hiring James White to kill Betty's well-known husband, Dr. Jack Wilson, an eye surgeon in Huntsville, Alabama. There were no physical evidence that connected either sister to the crime, only the testimony of James White. Peggy was acquitted, but Betty was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole. The Wilson's marriage was troubled. Dr. Wilson worked long hours and Betty did her own thing, which most consisted of having numerous affairs. Dr. Wilson had planned a trip to Santa Fe to help their marriage, but the night before they were to leave on their trip, Betty found her husband clubbed to death. According to the prosecution, Betty wanted the money, but not her husband. Many witnesses came forward claiming Betty wished her husband was dead. In 2006, Betty was remarried in prison to Bill Campbell, an army contractor who became highly obsessed with Betty after seeing her story on TV. Isn't that ironic that Betty, after all that she did, still somehow had a fan? Story number five, Bobby Frank Cherry, the racist bomber. In May 2002, Bobby Frank Cherry was convicted of four counts of murder and sentenced to life in prison for his involvement in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, which killed four African-American girls. Cherry was a member of United Clans of America, although he publicly denied his involvement in the bombing. Relatives and friends testified that he continuously bragged about being part of the crime. His ex-wife claimed he lit the fuse. Cherry died in prison on November 18, 2004, at the age of 74. Story number six. The Girl Next Door. Northport, Alabama. Tracy Grissom says that when she shot her ex-husband, Hunter Grissom, at the Benham Creek boat landing in Northport, Alabama, she feared for her life. A fear she says she'd felt many times before. He had hurt me. He had done a lot of things to me. I didn't want him dead. I don't want him dead. I still don't want him dead. Tracy told 48-hour correspondent Aaron Moriarty, What went through your mind when you saw him on the ground? Moriarty asked. That I was in trouble, Tracy replied. You had never been in trouble before in your life, Moriarty noted. No, she said. Tracy, a 32-year-old mother of two, says it was self-defense. The state says it was murder. Tracy Grissom interrogation. I never thought I'd kill him. I always thought he'd kill me, hits her head against the wall. She met Hunter Grissom in 2003. Tracy was just 21, a young mother to son, James Michael, and going through a divorce. He absolutely loved my son. That, to me, made all the difference in the world, she said. Melina Gardner, Hunter's mother, remembers it as love at first sight. He was sucked in immediately, she said. Hunter was two years younger than Tracy. When the couple eloped in 2004, Gardner felt it was too soon. He was young, he had just turned 20, and just certainly nowhere near ready, she said. Eight months later, the marriage was in trouble. I had caught him smoking marijuana, Tracy explained. Doing illegal things could cause a problem, and I couldn't risk losing my son over. 
After threatening him with a divorce, Tracy says Hunter promised to stop using marijuana and their relationship improved so much that Tracy leveraged everything she owned so they could start a business together. I took out an equity line to start a company, which was Grison Construction. It was all in my name, she told Moriarty, and they had a child of their own, Anna Grace. We had tried to have a child for quite some time. We, we actually have five miscarriages before we had her, Tracy said. She was premature. Her heart and lungs were not developed. A very stressful time, Tracy agreed. That's a stressful time, Moriarty commented. What more, she says. Hunter appeared to be acting strangely. So Tracy, a registered nurse, says she gave him an over-the-counter drug test. It showed marijuana, oxycotton, methamphetamine, she told Moriarty. I then realized that his addiction obviously was way past what I ever dreamed that it was. Tracy filed for divorce in summer of 2010, and over time, she says Hunter became abusive. He knocked me on the floor and hit me all over my body. I ended up with a black eye. I had bruised shoulder, she said, even after Hunter moved out. Their divorce agreement allowed him to have access to the house, so Tracy says the beating continued. Although no one witnessed them, Tracy never reported them. You could have gone to the police and said, this man is hitting me, said Moriarty. I was told if I went to the police, he would kill me. And so that, to me, wasn't even an option, said Tracy. On the night of November 22nd, 2010, when Hunter arrived to take care of the children, Tracy said he flew into a rage. She told him she had spent the night with a new boyfriend. He told me that he was going to kill me, she said. Tracy says that around 10 p.m. that night, Hunter took her to the bedroom, bound her legs, raped her, and then threw her against the bathtub. I was knocked unconscious, she said. Tracy says she regained consciousness around 4 a.m. The kids was asleep downstairs and Hunter was gone. I called Hunter. I told him that I was bleeding and that I was hurt and that I needed help. And he told me, F you, I hope you die, she said in tears. When Tracy went to the hospital, police were notified and Hunter was later arrested for rape, sodomy, kidnapping, and domestic violence. And at that point, I fear for my life and I fear for my children's life, she said. Hunter was allowed out of bail. So Tracy got a restraining order against him, purchasing a handgun and carried it with her everywhere. It was only a matter of time until he came after us, said Tracy. At the same time, Tracy says Hunter stopped paying spousal support and his daughter's expenses. Tracy said she was told that Hunter wasn't working, but she didn't believe it. And that's what led to the fateful morning of May 15th, 2012. Got behind the wheel again and took 48 hours for the drive that changed her life. She says she was on her way to an interview for a nursing job when she became distracted. There's a break in the trees and the right side was a large toll boat that had a billboard sign on the side that said Chrism Construction, she pointed out to Moriarty. And I immediately, within about a 30 second period, made probably the stupidest mistake of my life. And that was to go in the parking lot to take a picture. She says she wanted a photo to show that Grizzin Construction was indeed up and running. I was getting ready to take a picture, and when I looked up, he was standing almost directly towards the front of the boat trailer. He was looking back directly at me. 
he had this face that's like me and just, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, I see it all over and over like it's right there all the time. He flipped me the bird, which to me was kind of like, yeah, I'm working, screw you. And at this point, I panicked. He was walking towards you? Moriarty asked Tracy. Yes, he was now within like five foot of coming at my car like he was gonna bust my window out, she said. In her lap was the gun she bought 18 months earlier. Tracy stepped out of the car and began shooting. I mean, I just opened the door, she said. The next thing I remember is a click. Tracy had emptied her entire gun, six shots. Four of the shots hit Hunter and brought him face down to the pavement. Then she called 911. Operator, your name is Tracy? Yes. And you killed your husband? Ex-husband, yes. Ex-husband, how did you kill him? I shot him. Do you have the gun? I got the gun. What kind of gun do you have? I couldn't take it no more. I couldn't take it. Okay, calm down. I couldn't take it no more. As it turns out, there were witnesses to what happened on the dock that day. William Dockery to 911. My boss just got shot. Somebody just pulled up and shot my boss. She's in a gold, a little gold Chevrolet. I, I don't know if she's reloading or what. William Dockery and his brother, Dale, both work for Hunter Building Dock on Lake Tuscaloosa. He was a good friend, the best boss anybody could ever ask for. It's the only job I had in my life, and I enjoyed going to work every day. I enjoyed the man I was working for, said Will. It was early August 2014 just over two years since Hunter Grissom had been gunned down by ex-wife Tracy and her trial was finally about to begin. It was a moment that Hunter's mother, Melanie Gardner, had been dreading. I knew that it was going to be hard. You know, I, I even referenced to some people, some friends, I thought the trial would be worse than the death. And to some degree it was, she told Aaron Moriarty. The charge was standby jury and would have decided whether Tracy was guilty for murder or whether she was just defending herself. Freeman hoped to support her defense case by showing the jury those dramatic photos. Freeman claims Tracy shot Hunter because she suffered from post-traumatic stress from early abuse, but he couldn't find an expert who would say that in court. So now there really was only one way to get juries to understand why Tracy pulled the trigger. Tracy had to take the stand and tell them herself. That was the only way to let them know that I was defending myself, she said. And the only way that I felt they would understand what I was going through that day. Tracy was allowed to tell the jury about the alleged rape and she lived in fear of Hunter, but she could not show those graphic photos. Tracy's trial lasted only two days. And then just before the case went to jury, the judge made stunning reversal out of the blue. The judge said that he believed that this was a manslaughter case, said Freeman. If both sides could agree, the judge would let jury consider a charge of manslaughter. When the prosecution agreed, it was then up to Tracy. It was decided that she was be convicted of murder. As Tracy waited for her fate, she remained optimistic that the jury would see her way and would not convict her of murdering Hunter Grissom. But just 90 minutes later, they get word that the jury had reached a verdict. The judge read the verdict. He said, guilty, guilty of murder. 
and I immediately was devastated, Tracy told Moriarty. In 2014, a jury found Grissom guilty of murder. Tuscaloosa Circuit Court Judge John England sentenced her to 25 years in prison. It's really sad to see the justice system not really doing their justice of looking into the case. Do you believe that Grissom should have paid the ultimate price of 25 years for killing her abusive husband? Or do you believe that she was misunderstood and that the court got it wrong? Well, whatever the case may be, we'll see you next time on It's Evil, Real Alabama Cases. Stay safe.